Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it's time once again for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, Kate Lewis begins her activism for the people of Western Sahara in England. And later on, she, when she came to Australia, it became part of her life here as well. Another reaction to the Anzac Circus with Jack Smith from Project Safecom. The reality for Palestinian refugees by Yusuf Rewat-Mawi, who is the presenter of the 3CR Palestine Remembrance Program. But before that, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy, and I believe he's had an Anzac week as well. A week, Jane, listener, when I'm feeling very unwell. No idea what's causing it. Don't want to lower the tone and hope you're not uh, eating afternoon tea or something, listener. But every time I've picked up a paper this week or turned on the telly news, I, I start to vomit. It, it's spontaneous. Very worrying. So worrying. I had this CAT scan and other tests, and they think it might be something called Anzacitis, whatever that is, and could last for another couple of weeks, they reckoned. Bloody nuisance. But, but that was the first diagnosis. Now they've studied media and government medical data and reckon it could last another four years. A, a series of painful trigger points occurring on a regular basis. One of the causes of my illness has been the daily Lord Rupert a whopping zin dose of dear little children telling us great-grand-uncle whatever died for his corporate masters and little Watson and his name appreciates what they, they including great-grand-uncle, did for us. Well, big supremo, tiny, a bit more for the bosses himself appreciates what they did for us and tells us we all must appreciate what they did for us. And, and it's true, listener, as long as we believe that Boers or Turks or Malaysians or Koreans or Vietnamese or Afghans or Iraqis or anyone else we've invaded across the planet on the orders of our contemporaries temporary colonial economic masters, and they've all been men, true blue Aussie bouncing along on the coattails of imperialism, unless we believe we would have been overrun by all these people who would now be running this country, stealing it off the lot who stole it in 1788, then it does beg the question, what did they do for us? Answers in one word or less to the week that was Care3CR. Big philosophical differences developing between the caring business class and socialist parties over superannuation and negative gearing handouts to the rich. The Socialist Party, its man of principal economic guru Chris Bow and the Capital declared, will quite possibly, oh well maybe, uh, well perhaps, uh, do something about handouts to the rich through super and negative gearing. But, but let me assure those ripping off, we will not stop them ripping off. Any changes will take place in the future, the, the distant future, quite possibly. Uh, well, maybe. Uh, well, perhaps. Imagine the terror over the cognac and lobster down at the Melbourne Club. The only more frightening prospect I can think of, bonkers, is seeing a woman come through the door. 
On the other hand, the ideological opposite, Caring Business Class Party, has promised it will not touch handouts to the rich. How can we lift the poor and slothful bludgers out of their poverty if we don't make the rich richer so they can lift the poor out of the gutters? So the famous yellow liquid can trickle down to those gutters, which, may we point out, they mostly utilise without paying a cent in rent. That's a far more sensible fare to all egalitarian policy bonkers. Well, they'll be lifted out, all right. <laughs> exactly. Lovers of, those of us who respect our laws which allow the smooth working of society, including the smooth working of, of all the equal before the law, no such thing as class struggle industrial relations system, will welcome the recommendation by the Her Most Gracious Majesties Get the Building Union's Kenga Mission Crown Prosecutor Jeremy Stolger writes that rogue union officials should face $200,000 fines and be disqualified from holding office. The latter, because Jeremy points out sensibly, the union could just pay the bloody fine and the rogue official could continue to be a rogue official. Rogue action like demanding safety or complaining about workers being killed and injured or underpaid or not paid. Inadvertently, of course. Now, I raise this because the story made P1. Thursday, Troubler was a capitalist review. Union crooks face 200,000 fines bans. The whopping sin. Dodgy union heads in the crosshairs. And in a separate story, union heavy band. Don't crooks, dodgy, heavy, describe evil unions so appropriately, so objectively. Just the same day, a transport worker awarded 6000 for wrongful dismissal, caring employer described as company director. Several stories about the bank's financial advice odd mistakes. The mum and dad investors, they also love losing trillions. Big bank supremos expressing remorse. We knew nothing about it, but the buck doesn't stop here. A mob who put up those want longer lasting sex billboards and charging about 4500 to dud desperates forced to repay customers because the treatment was predictably useless. But no criminal charges or fines. Well, did I say a mob? The company, the report said, and the founder, it described Jack Evasion Man, who incidentally, when the proverbial first hit the fan, closed the company and reopened next stay under a new name. That highly respected construction giant Leighton's has changed its name because Leighton's was so on the nose after all these scandals and corruption. In other words, the usual daily array of responsible corporate supremos and caring businesses slapped over the wrist for some minor offence like ripping off trillions. But nowhere do pejoratives like crooks dodgy or heavy appear because these are respectable people and those pejoratives are reserved for evil unions and, and the respectable corporate lawbreakers inadvertently breaking the law attract a slap over the wrist because they have already suffered poor dears their reputation eroded by being sprung punishment enough You've gone down in my estimation, Jenks old chapper. How were you silly enough, so bloody careless, to get sprung? Whereas dodgy crook union heavies have no reputation to lose, so they must suffer the full force of the 200 grand and be cast into the fires of unemployment.
Oh, and Jeremy and his great mate, his honour, the Royal Commissioner, Mr Justice Hay down with unions, are planning to investigate the link between evil union officials and the Socialist Party. And obviously, therefore, you'll also look at the relationship between the great responsible corporate boardrooms and both major parties. Of course not. Our role is to smash, uh, sorry, uh, investigate anti-social behaviour, help maintain a smooth, socially cohesive society. On that theme, the True Blue Capitalist Review editorial yesterday backed Jeremy and Dyson, pointing out crook, dodgy, evil union heavies running the country posed a catastrophic threat to liberty, freedom and democracy, particularly to the freedom bit, the freedom of capital, the only freedom that matters. True Blue Aussie needs to reduce cost structures to be able to compete on world markets it preached. Uh, so we must reduce cost structures to Bangladesh clothing workers' levels, for instance. We need to keep an eye on that because there has been a worrying move to increase wages in Bangladesh and to force caring employers to spend even more to prevent builders' buildings burning down or, or falling down. That move could be even worse if they had crook, dodgy, evil union heavies. In fairness, the editorial does acknowledge unions would better serve their members if motivated less by political concerns of the Socialist Party. And we've all seen the nexus reflected in the Socialist Party's socialist bit running amok, but how big, how generous of the daily voice of the caring business class to offer sensible advice to the evil unions, proof that despite the irresponsibility of those very unions, there is no such thing as class struggle class war. And to maintain that smooth, socially cohesive society, our old mate Twitty's company, Fortescue Pay Us, says the government has a responsibility to help it out over the fall in iron ore prices, which has made life a bit ordinary for poor old Twitty and Fortescue Pay Us. Responsibility because, quote, the material in question is a state-owned resource. There is an absolute issue here of public interest. Oh, so Twitty's twigged, the stuff they're digging up belongs to the people. Just trying to recall this, the Twitty making that point during the mining resource super-duper obscene profits tax debate as he stood on the platform screaming his principled position alongside his great mate Gina. When you find the quote, do let us know. Finally, we mentioned evil unions and those lazy, avaricious Bangladesh workers trying to cripple their caring employers. Well, as we celebrate war, as we must, uh, let us not celebrate non-war, as we must, even though those dodgy union-heavy crooks try to maintain the oh-so-dated shibboleth of class war. There are spoil sports trying to undermine the celebration of great real war by raising issues like Friday was the second anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh which murdered, sorry, accidentally killed 1,100 workers, mostly young, expendable women. For God's sake, there's plenty more of them. And if, as the Capitalist Review pointed out, evil unions didn't interfere here through crippling demands like wages and conditions, our workers could make the clothes here for the great responsible outlets that sell the clothes here. We don't hear those responsible suggesting there's class war, do we? They know we're all equal, like those Bangladesh women, all equal. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy.
Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. On the program last week, Kate Lewis, Vice President of AUSA, the Australian Western Sahara Association, which campaigns for a free and fair referendum on self-determination for the Sahrawi people, spoke about her earlier life, growing up in Melbourne, uni here and then France, and then on to England. Her involvement with the Woodcraft Folk, a progressive youth organisation which her children attended, resulted in her learning about Western Sahara. I'll play back a couple of minutes of the end of last week just for an introduction to Western Sahara and Kate. Then we started having what we called solidarity delegations where there wasn't necessarily an exchange but we would invite children from countries which were in some kind of difficulty such as Palestine or Nicaragua to come. We actually hosted the first South African group that came after apartheid had ended. In that context, a group from Brighton hosted some children coming from the Sahrawi refugee camps and that was definitely my introduction to the issue. And what were you told at that time? I had a friend who was very interested, became very interested because he could see that the refugee camps were in the part of the desert where he had done research for his geology PhD. So he got everyone to come along to a meeting they were having to explain the situation. They explained what was happening and that their country had been invaded. The refugees had had to go to Algeria. But I don't think I really understood it very well or took in an awful lot at that time in 1988. The whole big camp was divided into villages. Their village was next door to ours. And we had encouraged our children to bring bicycles to the camp. The Sahrawi children would come in and see a bicycle and start riding it. It was quite interesting to see that they had this very shared idea of property. They didn't think, oh, I have to ask somebody before I ride a bicycle. So, yes, so we interacted with the children quite a bit. What about language? Oh, yes, there's difficulty with language because they speak it Spanish a certain amount. It had been a Spanish colony and it was much closer in those days to being a Spanish colony because it was 13 years away only, whereas now it's a long way away. And the new generation don't speak Spanish very much, although Spaniards still bring children to Spain in the summer, so those children do learn to get by in Spanish when they're living for some weeks in Spain. Was there also support through Europe for these refugees in the camps? The friend who was interested, Keith, he and his partner went to visit the camps. They said, what can we do to help? We've just sent a container of things to war orphans in Namibia. You know, we'd like to do something like that. And they said, oh, don't bother sending material aid because 
that is more or less under control at that time. But bring the children out for the summer because it's so harsh in the desert. They had a big program. And so we started having children coming to the UK. Not as many as go to Spain. Thousands and thousands go to Spain every year. And even maybe up to a thousand might go to Italy or France. You know, we would have a modest 20, something like that, which was about as many as we could cope with. But it still helped. And it was, as they say, that children are the best ambassadors. And although there was a language problem, the children would find a language they could understand like football. There was always activities that the children liked. And when they weren't being taken to ride bicycles or go ice skating or things like that, they were just fascinated to be in a house that had stairs. In those days, they liked telephones. In those days, it was a novelty. So you kept that up right until you came to Australia in 2002, your support for West. Did you ever go to the camps in that period or is that later? I went um, to the camps in 1998 for the first time. At that point, James Baker, there was a big expectation that he would find a breakthrough and they would bring about the referendum. They were needing to train international observers who would observe. We could see that the big, big issue would be to make sure that the referendum was conducted properly and we needed a lot of international observers to make sure that there wouldn't be any hijinks or silly tricks going on at the ballot box. So in 1998, we were training people to become international observers. It was thought that the next year there was a countdown timetable that the referendum would be held. And I went with a group that was being taken by Oxfam in Belgium. Was it a shock to you, or do you realise that? just how bad it would be. I had a fair idea of what it would be like, I suppose. But, yeah, it was very hard for people living there all the time. I mean, it's some people find it quite hard to visit for even a week, but when you're living there all the time and the heat is very, very intense in the summer and the cold is quite cold in the winter and the winds are very strong most of the year, there are sandstorms and all of that makes everything else very difficult. For example, it's hard for them to have computers that stay in order because of the standstorms and also because of intermittent power supplies. Algeria has got plenty of power, but the supplies that come to the camps are um, very attenuated and sometimes they have power cut outages without any warning. So when we were thinking of trying to help them with their IT. It was always laptops that they wanted because they wanted to just have them charged so that they could run them without damage to what was in it with a power outage. Now you came back to Australia in 2002, as I said. Why was that? It was when Harry retired. I said I was going to retire too and I was going to give up all the work with Western Sahara. But that didn't happen, did it? No, it didn't, because the Polisario decided to start having a representative in Australia. They appointed somebody I knew from the mission in London. He is still here now, uh, Kamal Fadel. And he got in touch with me and said, I've been appointed to go to Australia. And we discussed where he would go and what he would do. And 
he said, well, I'll go to Sydney and you, if you're going to Melbourne, you can start a group in Melbourne. I said, oh, no, I'm retiring. <laughs> I might help a group, but I'm not going to run it. But, uh, yeah, he said I couldn't give it up. It, my retirement project, he said. And 12 years later? Yes, it's still <laughs> my retirement project and I'm still trying to retire and not managing very well. Now, you have been back and you've also travelled to Europe and maybe America over that time in support of Western Sahara? That's right, yes. In um, 2004, we had the first Australian delegation to the camps. In 2009, I went to the United Nations Fourth Committee on Decolonisation where annually they receive what are called petitioners, people who will come and speak on behalf of one of the countries that are classed as a non-self-governing territory and in need of decolonisation. Western Sahara has been on their books since 1964, I think. That's one of those places where one can make a public statement that is appreciated by the Saharawis in support of their case. And you've been back to the camps again? Uh, not since uh, 2004. I went to Women's Congress in 2001 after 1998. But in 2013, I didn't go to the camps. I went to Western Sahara itself, the occupied part, occupied by Morocco. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? That was very interesting. I went with a French group that time. They were having a campaign for Sahrawi political prisoners to be released. But in the interim, they wanted to deliver mail to them. It was claimed that the right that prisoners had to receive mail was being honoured. But we had evidence that it was not being honoured. So they had a whole lot of people who had kind of adopted different prisoners and they'd written letters to different prisoners. So we were going to different prisons, some of which are in Morocco itself, not in Western Sahara. So we started near Agadir. We went uh, through southern Morocco. And I found that extremely interesting because I've always heard that there were a lot of Sahrawis living in the, that part of Morocco but to actually make contact with them and meet them was really interesting. Then we went into the occupied part itself, to the capital in El Ayun. We travelled south to the southern town called Dakhla, then went east to Smara, which is only 100 kilometres from the wall, which divides from the liberated part of Western Sahara. There's a wall that uh, the Moroccans built to contain the Sahrawis and to contain their part of the territory that they had sort of won in a military way, thousands of kilometres long, and it divides the country roughly two-thirds and one-third. I had already been on the Sahrawi side of the wall where it's held by the Polisario Front, the resistance or independence movement. What I found was, although the people there are living in some respects a more comfortable life, they have proper houses, not tents and mud huts, and some of them are very nicely furnished and tiled with beautiful tiles inside and so on. They have a different kind of 
hardship which is being under the scrutiny of the secret police the entire time. They can't make a movement in or out of their house without somebody noticing and sometimes their houses are invaded by the police. At the conference that we held in Melbourne last month, a video was shown of our visitors' house being stoned by the police. All night, she told me, they threw stones at her house. They broke every window in the house. They kicked the door to smithereens. Video shows all kinds of things. I don't know whether they are rocks that have been thrown through the door or bits of crumbling masonry from inside the house, but it's uh, a dreadful thing not to feel secure in your own house. And that gets a lot worse than that, though. Oh, it gets a lot worse than that. She was arrested and taken to the police station, and one of the things that they are doing now to Saharawis, instead of putting them in prison, they are a lot more arresting them, interrogating them for a day, and then releasing them. Sometimes they take them to somewhere out of the town and release them there. Sometimes they release them naked to make it more difficult for them to come home. All this kind of thing goes on. But they can claim that to Amnesty International or somebody like that who might be keeping an eye on them that they aren't detaining these people. One of the nasty tricks that they are doing is that they inject them with unknown substances. But they do know that they have a bad effect on them. They affect their health. In one case, I met a young man, a beautiful young man, maybe 30-something, who had been paralysed by these injections, and he was just lying on the floor in his mother's house, and she was having to do everything for him, and it was really hard. You're listening to the final part of my interview with Kate Lewis, who is the Vice President of the Australian Western Sahara Association. And you are listening to Melbourne's Community Radio 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, and this is Tuesday Home Time. And then the prisons are pretty bad too. Oh, the prisons are terrible. There is a lot of torture. The uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Juan Mendes, who's recently been looking at the situation of detention of asylum seekers in Australia, I believe he's a very strong and just person. He said that torture was being used routinely against Sahrawi activists far too much and that Morocco, he wanted, called on Morocco to put an end to that. Once is too much. Once is too much. And that any case when torture was alleged should be investigated. Now, the husband of the French woman who organised my visit is in prison in Rabat and he's one of the 22 prisoners that were taken at the time of a big mass protest which has become known as Gidei Mizik which is the place where they set up a mass tent camp tented city really of uh, up to 20,000 people 8,000 tents or something like that they said Uh, When that was dismantled, people were taken into custody and some of them were tried in a military court and they are still in prison. They've been given very harsh sentences, ranging from 20 years to life. But this particular guy, Inama Asfari, 
He was actually arrested the day before all of these, these events. He was transported in a plane with somebody either stand with a boot on his head in a plane to a rabat. I don't know quite why they thought he was so dangerous. And I, I don't know what other tortures he's suffered, but he has made a claim against the Moroccan government for torture, which has not been heard. They didn't admit any of that evidence at the trial. None of the witnesses that could have given witness uh, were allowed to speak. People, witnesses for the prosecution wouldn't even testify. They showed some video that was completely ambiguous and didn't, nobody could have been identified from the video. It was a complete sham trial. They have joined with a group in France called of Christians Against Torture, ACAT it's no, is its acronym, and they've filed complaints to the French because Anama is a French citizen as well. They've filed complaints in the French uh, judicial system. Hopefully those will get heard and maybe there will be some kind of bringing to account of the Moroccans over their torture claims. But another thing that happened was that the Minister of the Interior, Hamushi, was visiting Paris. This same organisation made a summons to him to appear in court to answer for these claims of torture. There was a clause under which they could do that and they delivered the summons to the French ambassador's house where he was staying. This caused a huge diplomatic incident and a rift in France, which is unusual because France is a very close ally with Morocco. And it went on for nearly a year. And it's only recently been lifted a little bit. I suspect that some of the concessions that would have been made for the normal uh, relations to be resumed may be that they won't pursue this case too hard. I don't know, but one wonders. Now, over those last 12 years, you've managed to bring a couple of Western Saharan women to Australia? We have. Men as well or just women? Both. The first visitor brought by the Australia Western Sahara Association was a woman, Fatima Mahfoud, who came in 2003. That's when our organisation started in Victoria. It was already going in Sydney and they were the ones who'd raised the money to bring her over. Then... In 2007, we had Melanine Lachal, who was the Secretary-General of the Sahrawi Journalists' Union at that time. He has done his full stint in that role, and so he's not doing that anymore. But he's still very active, and he's actually working in Addis Ababa at the moment with the Sahara Mission there with the Africa Union. Then we had, had Aisha Dahan, the sister of one of the human rights activists called Abrahim Dahan, who at that time was in custody. He was released shortly before Aisha came. 2012, Malak Amidan was brought as a young unionist from the occupied territory, and she came together with Mohammed Sheikh, who was the Secretary-General of the Sahrawi Workers' Union in the camps, Ukhtsario, and they attended the Congress of the 
ACTU in Sydney. Which was the young woman connected to the, the film, Stolen? Of course, we brought Fatim and her husband, Baba Salama. They came in 2009, yes, of course. That was an, a big incident. A film made by an Australian filmmaker. Unfortunately, it didn't seem to be in anything like the normal kind of films that get made by people who go to the camps. This person made a film. She seemed to want to have a big scoop on a controversial subject, and she decided that the black component of the Sahrawi population were slaves. Now, it is true that most of them have become part of the community through slavery, but many generations ago. In one or two cases, it was found when Human Rights Watch looked at it, there were some residual traditions left. In a couple of cases, one woman complained that she was not able to marry the person she wanted to marry. Very few little vestiges like that. And once they were pointed out, the Polisario fixed that up. But the people who made uh, Stolen are continuing to argue that slavery does exist, that it is real, and it is very upsetting because it isn't really true. The Polisario made it one of their very first things that they abolished when they kind of reformed their society quite a lot to make it a very democratic it is the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic and their constitution that was agreed into in 1974 abolished slavery, which was by then still not very real, but it was officially abolished. And they've tried to conduct a very egalitarian society. Everybody has the same education they, and so on. So it's it's very unjust on them. They have a very devolved power. The grassroots contribute to the management of the camps. Every member of the camps has to be on some committee or another running the camps, whether to do with food or education or health or whatever. And it's it's really an unjust charge. So when the film was chosen to make its debut in the Sydney Film Festival, the Polisario representative, Kamal Fadel, decided to bring the sort of star of the film out to be able to claim in person that uh, I am not a slave. I think it said that in the headline in the Sydney Morning Herald the morning after the debut. There must have been many, many people that you've met over those years, both Western Saharans and others. Who were the maybe a few that have been a great inspiration to you? One of the people who, I guess, as a Harawi, I got to know the best in the early stages was Bashir. People who came on our delegation were called Boisha. That's how he was known in the camps. But we used to call him Bashir when he was in Leeds. He came as a representative and lived with my friends. Uh, We had an office there, and I used to help him quite a bit, and he would be going back every six months to see his wife and family. He would take people to see the cave paintings and the rock carvings that exist in the liberated zone. And he really loved his country, and I guess I got to 
get a bit of a feel for it and he would show us photographs. We gave him a camera to take photographs of everyday life that we could use with particularly for the children to try and convey to them what it was like and so we got some photographs of them all eating from the same bowl of couscous and things like that. But his daughter, mischievous daughter, the younger one, found the camera when he had gone off on one of these trips with the visitors and she started taking photographs. So unfortunately a lot of the film was unusable because it had these mystery um, ghosts uh, of double exposed film. It was in the days of a film camera. I guess I got to know the country well from, from Bashir. We thought he was living in a lovely place with big trees and very nice old house but he felt almost suffocated under the trees and he used to have to go to a park where he could see a bigger horizon that was what made him feel okay things like that you start to understand the mentality of people who live in the desert another representative who came to London I only knew for a short time, very sadly only a short time, for about six months he was there. And he was a remarkable Sahrawi as well, Fadeli Smile. He had been the Minister for Information and he'd lived in Paris for a while and in Addis Ababa he was ambassador. He came to London and it was difficult for him because he suffered from asthma and the climate wasn't good. But he was a very proactive person and he was going about his new assignment with great energy and understanding the whole of where he was looking after British Isles and and Ireland. Then suddenly he had an asthma attack and died in London. It was really sad. But I often think of him and how he would sit on a cushion on the floor with his laptop and he would seem to be the, to, to be the picture of the modern nomad. He was a great guy. Those are two Saharawis that I've known well. Well, finally, Kate, the conference which was held in March this year, the Natural Resources, the Key to Western Sahara's Future, and there was an award that night. Tell us about the award. <laughs> I was very taken aback by that award. It was all the same a great honour for the Saharawis to give me this award, which I'm assured not very many people have. I don't know who the others are. The award of the 20th of May, which is the date of the start of the armed struggle of the Polisario Front. The 10th of May is the day of the foundation of the Polisario Front and the 20th of May is the start of the armed struggle which is still happening in the sense that there is only a ceasefire. The armed struggle hasn't been declared over because they have not won their objective of independence. At the same time, although it was a big honour, I felt embarrassed because there are so many people in the room who to me deserve it more than I did. I don't know whether they they may have it already, I don't know, but uh, at least um, half a dozen other people, I think, who've done as much or more for the Saharawi cause as I have. And thanks to Kate Lewis for telling her story over the 
past two weeks. Kate is the Vice President of the Australian Western Sahara Association and as she just said there, she's the recipient of the 20th of May Award, which was awarded to her at the conference just a couple of weeks ago. It's um, 38 minutes past four o'clock and coming up in a moment, another look at Anzac Day. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no-comment interview. A no-comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say... No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes, except your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment? Yes, you say... No, no comment. comment! To everything? Yes. Say no If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. Fitzroy Legal Service proudly supporting 3CR. It was as bad as I had expected. Wall to wall, day by day and night, and the 100th anniversary of the Anzac ill-fated Gallipoli campaign. Celebrations and commemorations which ignored the fact that World War I was fought by major powers battling for the spoils of colonisation in the previous century. Jack Smith, human rights activist with Project SafeCom in WA, has also survived. All right, so we're talking about a war, a hundred years ago war, and the whole country is talking about Anzacs and Gallipoli, and I just wonder by myself what we're doing. You know, we are such a compliant country because it was an absolute disaster, the Gallipoli invasion, whatever you call it. The Gallipoli campaign was such an incredible disaster in itself. But you take a couple of steps back and then, you know, and people are acknowledging that around the country that it was such a disaster. But... Did this war, this horrendous war with you know, thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of poor, young, innocent, uh, enthusiastic men being slaughtered, just being slaughtered, did that war actually have to happen? And, you know, you see some glimpses every now and then. It should be central, but it's only glimpses of further investigation. You see that the decisions by the lords in the UK ordering attacks in the field were taken with complete disregard of what the situation was actually like. So tactically, it was total, total foolery. But if you go one more step back, you see that the Queen of um, Great Britain and the Kaiser of Germany and the Tsar in Russia are all the same family, brothers and sisters and cousins. And I think by myself, yeah, so, so was this a family feud for the British royals? Or did they put an idiot in charge in Germany, a guy who was even, according to the UK Queen, not capable of doing his job properly? And then we, of course, have this incredible jealousy between Germany and the UK developing, you know, the UK by 1910 already spying on the Germans, how many big 
ships are they building? Are they building warships? How many are they building? And how how can we get our hands on it? And you know, and then the, there is the competition of the liners. You know, everybody went on a cruise liner, and that was basically you can reduce that to um, well, you know, you can bugger off because my boats are bigger than your boats, and we built our boats faster and better, and we build them bigger, and you can bugger off because you're you can't compete with us. So there's this. There's ego-driven jealousy of the old establishment. And then there are, of course, the forces of people power so little yet in their conception, but they were there. So there was another movement away from autocratic, old, hierarchical, feudal authority. And you see that in the Russian Revolution in 1917, where um, Tsar Nikolai... but I think he, he was a brother of the British king. You know, their family was mauled to death during the revolution, but it was all because the old paradigm was breaking. And so we, we'd be fighting a battle over the maintenance of the old feudal power paradigms in uh, Western countries. And that really was was so much at play in this war. And for the good of that, ego-driven battle between feudal lords and the old paradigm being in the threat of a new thing secretly and quietly developing. For the sake of all that, we bring uh, hundreds of thousands of young boys between 14 and 18 and 17, and let's face it, a lot of them were underage. We bring them together and then we, uh, we shoot them to death. Uh, you know, on the altar of the of the feudal lords, and that really is what World War One was in so many respects. You know, forget about the military machine and all that jazz, because that's all being ramped up by those who want to maintain the glory of uh, of the powers of the West. I mean, Tony Abbott is guilty as hell there. He is the war lover from way back. He can't use guns in the parliament. He can't use his fists in the parliament, although he is itching at times, but he can maintain the old paradigm of the glory of the UK from the Great Britain and the colonial powers. That's what is still pervading our stupid society. And I just am so dismayed when I am, you know, I can't even switch on a radio station or a television station, no matter where I go. It's all about Anzac and Gallipoli and the Western Front and all that jazz. I mean, I'm a post-World War II baby. And I can see a really deep and incredulously important reasons for that, that justify the theatre of World War II. That was about really protecting the world from extremist fascism. And it was, the, was about the battle to establish equality for all men versus fascism and racism and exclusion of certain races. That was what World War II was about. But I can't see the sense of World War I. I just cannot see it. It is old, old history nonsense, and it's horrendous, and we keep celebrating it. And don't give me that we do not celebrate it. But because we did, we have and we are. You know, the millions of dollars invested by Australia 
for commemorations around the globe. It was, you know, almost wall-to-wall coverage over the last uh, couple of days on television. So, why? Why aren't we moving on? But we excelled even Great Britain for the amount of money that we spent on this over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was very clearly... I I watched some of the scenery at um, uh, the French commemoration site in Village Britain-Neuve, I think it's called. It was so clear this was an Australian event. It wasn't a European event. It was an Australian event. It was so clearly dominated by Australian dignitaries and speakers. And, you know, this was what we have spent money on. So where was the parliament approving it or not approving it? It also goes, all that stuff goes outside the approval of parliament. So, again, parliament sits there and nods and nods and nods and they didn't decide or approve all the incredible amount of money that we spent on it. Meanwhile, Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott scream about budget deficits. It's beyond me. At the same time, we're sending more and more troops to another war. Well, there's so many questions about that. I mean, you know, you know, and and I do acknowledge the need for armed conflict sometimes, but again, Australia excels in ignoring the community involvement and the battle for hearts and minds. There is, you know, then the, the promised funding for anti-extremist um, community action, community education and community engagement amongst the Muslim community or other communities. But then you find out that that money is actually not being spent or it actually hasn't been handed out. So Australian people are being told by the Abbott government that, yeah, we're all doing fine, we're doing everything, but we're not. You know, in Europe, the programs of um, derealization are a lot more advanced than uh, here in Australia. Again, we being stupid because we first grab the guns and uh, we forget the rest. That is really what we're doing, this government. And I'm afraid most of the country is just allowing this to happen, that we are being, we are being regressed to the 1950s, 1940s, 1930s, with the mentality of, uh, of the Abbott government. Yeah, I think it is it. It's all I can say, because what else is there to say? For the rest, uh, consult both your local military historian. Just thinking what it must be like for young Muslim men here in Australia when they see Australian troops and Australian money being sent overseas over the last years to destroy their countries, destroy well, their, the people, and then they, they get blamed if they get radicalised. Yep, that's right, exactly. I haven't even gone there, but you could even go there for a very long time, and I would like to do that with a couple of other people in a group on your radio station if that happens, but, and all alone, because I cannot, cannot be authoritative about it. There are so many issues around radicalization and the fury of the Muslim community with the arrogance of Western countries. You know, we kind of want to conveniently forget that we are still in a post-colonial phase in Western history. Post-colonial means anti-colonial sentiment and anti-Western sentiment. And that 
is only because we are only just coming out of a past where we, we were the most arrogant part of the world population. We just ran into other countries. And you see, that, that came out on the weekend as well with um, documentaries about Anzac Day and Gallipoli. The, the reality was that, you know, the, the famous rush for Africa, where the UK, England, and, and many other countries were trying to grab whatever country they could to colonize and to uh, establish plantations and import from their spices and their goods and their wealth. And Germany was struggling to, to match that battle for, for Africa. So you see that Germany felt it was missing out. It was jealous with the UK, and it tried to grab whatever country in Africa they could. And that's also one of the lead-ups to... Uh, them flexing their power um, and using their guns at the start of World War One. It, it all all connects, and guess what? We now have thousands of people drowning in the Mediterranean, and last week I, I read this beautiful, beautiful little snappy conclusion that here they are, they're coming on little dinghies to Europe because they want to share in the wealth of Europe the wealth that we stole out of their home countries in Africa in the first place. And we want to let them drown, and we want to send them back. So it all connects on the big picture. But um, politicians love ignoring the big picture because it doesn't make them get them votes. And it stirs their conscience, and they don't want their conscience stirred because they want to win the next election. So, But the reality is that... Uh, uh, no, Europe is not being flooded by African migrants and opportunistic cockroaches, as they've been called recently in the UK press. There's some people coming to Europe because they would love to share the wealth that was stolen from Africa in the first place. The wealth of Europe is thanks to the heinousness of invading under other countries and then saying, you know, we are Christians, you're not, so we need to dominate you for your own good. And I'm also waiting to hear the connection between the people fleeing from Libya and the destruction of their country by the US and NATO a few years ago. Exactly. Yep, that's right. It all connects, but you need to be prepared to have an open mind and not be married to certain outcomes of certain countries. There's a great discussion to be had on your radio station with a couple of people. And that is Jack Smith from Project Safecom which is um, a little town southeast of Perth in Western Australia. But they've got a big hearts down there and they've got a, a wonderful human rights group. You are listening to the home of human rights, 3CR. It's 4.53. You could be listening on your radio. You could be listening on digital on 3CR. You could be listening on your computer. A couple of ways. Streaming. You're going to get podcasts sent to your computer. All you need to do is listen and tune in to the webpage on 3cr.org.au. So, Fred, uh, how are we today? Uh, yeah, yeah, good. good. Mm, we certainly got some cavities here oh. in 16, 27 and 36. Oh, how did that happen? Sugar overload. Oh. You're in need of H3O. What's that? H3O? Uh. Simple. Switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Oh. Keep it up and you may hear less of this. 
Take Vic Health's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Kate Gorman and Jeremy Hopkins. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. For weeks, the media focused on what they called a catastrophe in the Yamuk Palestinian refugee camp in Damascus, which is the capital of the Palestinian diaspora where the ISIS group had taken control of large areas of the camp. But it must be remembered that Yamuk is only one of many Palestinian refugee camps in the Middle East, where to varying degrees Palestinians have been and continue to be vulnerable, including the refugee camps in their own homeland of Palestine. I'm joined by Yusuf Rimawi, Palestinian human rights activist, translator and presenter of 3CR's Palestine Remembered program. We're talking about 1948 onwards when Palestinians were either killed or exiled from their homeland. Was that happening before 1948? In fact, the Palestinian suffering in modern history began towards the beginning of the 20th century. What we call Nakba catastrophe is in 1948, but the Palestinian Nakba actually began uh, way before that when we started witnessing waves of uh, migrants uh, from uh, Europe who first came and started uh, resettling uh, some of the areas in Palestine. It didn't affect uh, in the first uh, 20 uh, years, but I think the first Palestinian statelessness happened in the 30s when uh, a group of Palestinians had to basically leave uh, Galilee areas to make room for one of the settlements, uh, the Jewish settlements, and I'm talking before 1948. But the biggest wave of expulsion of Palestinians, of course, happened after November 47 till early uh, 49. What happened in uh, in November 47 is the partitioning plan, the UN resolution uh, that gave Israel legitimacy and that gave the Jews more than half of the country in a time that they only controlled 6% 
So a group of people that have control over 6% of Palestine overnight is given more than 50%. Of course, they will accept this resolution. And of course, the Palestinians will not accept it. So by uh, accepting this uh, UN resolution, and uh, it's actually not a security council, it's a general assembly, which means that it is not the highest body of the United Nations. By accepting this United Nations ruling, in fact, they had their eyes on more than the land they were given, not just the 52% of the land, and then started uh, what we call the uh, war. Israelis uh, call it uh, independence war. Palestinians call it Nakba, catastrophe. The Arab regimes call it uh, the Palestine war. The result of this war is a total loss for uh, the Arab countries that sent armies uh, to fight in Palestine. When you hear that six or seven Arab countries are sending armies to fight the newly born state of Israel, you will automatically feel that this is going to be an easy, uh, an easy battle. But very few historians spoke about the number of the Arab armies combined. We're talking about less than 50,000 uh, soldiers, all of them, whereas the Israelis outnumbered them. And they were more organized. Some of them had experience in World War II. Let's also say that they were ideologically driven. Whereas the Arabs came there with good intention, but with bad organization, with also very serious problems in logistics supplies. So the result was that the Arabs lost this war and two-thirds of the Palestinian nation was expelled to first West Bank and Gaza, then to the neighboring Arab countries, what we call At-Tawq countries. At-Tawq is our Arabic word for necklace. It's like the necklace uh, countries that surround Palestine, that is uh, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. The birth of the Palestinian refugee problem happened as the aftermath of uh, this war. Palestinian uh, society is still paying the price of statelessness two or three generations since then. Is it known how many Palestinians were forced out? Uh, there are estimations from at least 700,000 Palestinians to about 850,000 Palestinians that were expelled from their hometowns and villages and cities in 1948. Of course, the three-quarters of a million were uh, distributed uh, among West Bank and Gaza Strip. And then, of course, uh, the biggest bulk uh, of, of the remaining went to Lebanon and then Syria. But then came the 1967 war, which actually resulted in another wave of statelessness. But this time, statelessness from areas of the West Bank. And here we have the definition between Lajik, refugee, and Nazih, displaced. It's a very complicated uh, legal definition, the difference between uh, the, the Lajik and Nazih, the 48 or 67. It doesn't matter. We're talking about loss of livelihood, loss of property, loss of lives, loss of family members, and loss of memory, loss of culture, loss of history. And you're talking about families who were driven out of their countries in less than 20 years, twice. Like, for, for example, my own relatives, my father's father, my grandfather, after whom I was named, actually, he's, he's, he's also Yusuf al-Rimawi, 
fled in 48 to West Bank and fled in 67 to Jordan and fled in 1970 to another part of Jordan because of the Jordanian PLO clashes. And that's in, in, in one person's life. Whereas my mother's family, my mom was born a year after Nakba. She was born in 49 after her family actually fled to the north, fled on foot to Lebanon, and then they made it to Syria. And my mother's family were among the 70,000 Palestinians that started the Yarmouk refugee camp in 1956. So if, if we are talking about the Palestinian statelessness in general, we have to remember it didn't happen over one event in history. And also we have to remember that some families had to live statelessness more than uh, once. In fact, in other uh, political instabilities in Arab world, like the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq in 1990, like the toppling of Saddam Hussein in, 19, in 2003, each and every political instability in the Arab regime somehow affects the Palestinians living in this or that country and definitely affect them negatively. Are you saying that there are Palestinians living in those neighbouring countries who aren't living in camps, or are they all in camps? And what do you describe as a camp? Well, that's a very good question, Jan. When we say camp, we are talking about makeshift housing. That is a temporary solution for a group of people. Um, however, this makeshift camps turned out to be permanent and turned out to be the only place that they can resort to. The beginning of the Palestinian camps started, uh, of course, the next day of Nakba, but the establishment of the United Nations Relief and Work Agency in what we call UNRWA uh, was in early uh, 50s, and it is an acknowledgement of the international community that there is a group of Palestinians whom Israel is denying return, and they need to be educated. They need to be given access to medical resources. They need to also have access to employment opportunities in areas where they are now after the war. So this United Nations body in what we call UNRWA, but the Palestinians call it the agency, you don't need to say UNRWA. You just say the agency, and the Arabic word for the agency in Arabic is al-wakala. So al-wakala is the only body that actually administrate the camps, also uh, is responsible for the education and, and health uh, within the camps. So to define the camp, we have to refer to how the UNRWA or the wakala defines these camps. And then you have the other question of are all these camps registered in UNRWA? For example, you might find it surprising to know that one of the biggest camps in the world, in what, what we call the capital of Palestinian diaspora, Al-Yarmouk, refugee camp, is not recognized by UNRWA. Why? It just didn't see it as a camp because it has become part of Damascus. It's from Damascus uh, neighborhood. Since it was uh, built in '56, it didn't have this kind of isolated uh, boundaries that the camp, because you need something to identify in isolated terms to be uh, referred to as a camp. And therefore, Yarmouk, the capital of Palestinian 
diaspora is not recognized, is not registered within even the United Nations as a camp. However, UNRWA operates within the boundaries of Yarmouk. So it's, it's a very tricky legal definition, but in the end, the price of that is that we're talking about stateless Palestinians generation after another. And would you say that in a lot of those camps, the supply of food, the supply of medicine, the supply of education is, is limited, particularly the ability to work? Let's say that we have to give credit to UNRWA for the work they have been doing for more than 60 years to maintain the Palestinian society within the boundaries of refugee camps as much as they can. But let's also remember that the countries that have financial obligations towards supporting UNRWA are not meeting their uh, financial obligations, including Australia and the Arab countries. And therefore, UNRWA is under-resourced. UNRWA doesn't have enough money to provide education to all the Palestinian refugees that they are supposed to be looking after. Not only that they don't have the financial resources, they don't have the human resources. They don't have enough personnel on ground to do the job. You can correlate the two, actually, because they probably don't have enough money for wages. On top of that, some of the camps, especially the ones in Gaza, have been targeted by Israel in each and every time they can. Like, for instance, in the last six or seven years, Israel waged three brutal wars on Gaza Strip, uh, and especially on the camps, Al-Shaja'iyya uh, and, and Al-Shata, uh, uh, Al-Maghazi, and all of these uh, camps in Gaza have been uh, targets to Israel. And in, in fact, we're talking about uh, United Nations schools that uh, were targeted by the Israeli missiles. So it's not just enough that we're talking about under-resourced United Nations body. Whatever little they have is also being destroyed by Israel in in Gaza. So to go back to your question, Jan, the Palestinians in refugee camps hugely rely on uh, United Nations for their education. And in fact, it might be the only source of education because they don't have access to private, uh, they don't have the money to send their kids to private schools. In some countries, uh, they can't even send their kids to government schools, like in Lebanon, for example. The situation, and here comes the other question, is the status of Palestinians in neighboring countries, are they the same? No, they're not the same. Different Arab regimes treated Palestinians different way. And we can talk about that if you, if, if, if you like. Are you saying they're not accepted? Uh, Well, acceptance... Is that the wrong word? Maybe. Look, none of the Arab countries accepted Palestinians, even those who raised the banner of resistance, like the Syrian regime. When I say don't accept them, I don't mean that they are uh, persecuting them. But accepting the ultimate obligation of having Palestinians in your country. I have to also say that the Syrian regime is the best when it comes to treating Palestinians in terms of giving them access to free education, uh, free university, tertiary education, and that's something UNRWA can't provide. UNRWA doesn't have universities or colleges. UNRWA has from year 1 to year 12, and that's it, and probably pre-school. So access to the universities and to employment... The Syrian uh, regime uh, is the best when it comes to to that. The situation in uh, Jordan is different 
because most of the Palestinians living in Jordan, like myself, hold Jordanian passport, which means that we are citizens. We are not refugees. Yes, we are refugees somehow, but legally we are citizens of Jordan. And that is because Jordan in '48 annexed the West Bank before it was occupied in '67. And you cannot annex the land without its people. And therefore, the Jordanian government in early 50s granted Jordanian passport to the West Bank people, including my grandfather. And we became Jordanians. So that's why when the 67 war happened, it was easy to access Jordan, to live in Jordan as Jordanian citizens after 67. However, the situation is also uh, not straightforward. It's not black and white. Yes, they can uh, study in government schools. Uh, they can access uh, government hospitals. But when it comes to, for, for example, tertiary education, well, there is some kind of more barriers Palestinians have to face uh, before they are treated equally. Whereas the worst situation for Palestinians uh, in Arab countries is in Lebanon. You are listening to... Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne's community radio station 3CR with Joan Bartlett. And I'm speaking with Yusuf Ramawi, Palestinian human rights activist, translator and presenter of the 3CR Palestinian program, Palestine Remembered. Lebanon denies the Palestinian refugees there a list of rights, including employment. There is more than 70 jobs that Palestinians cannot even apply to. And the Palestinians should be contained within the boundaries of camps. And therefore, it varies from country to another. I don't want to blame Lebanon for everything, because Lebanon witnessed in the modern history a series of instabilities. The highest peak of that is the civil war from 1975 to 1990. Fifteen years of civil war where everybody fought everybody else and everybody made alliance to yesterday's enemy. And the result of that, more than 230 thousand Lebanese were killed in 15 years of uh, civil war. In fact, last week, uh, it was the commemoration of the 40th anniversary of the Lebanese civil war. So it is very easy to dismiss everybody else's responsibility and blame Lebanon on everything. And I'm not going to do that. However, I call upon the Lebanese civil society, the Lebanese government, to basically respect the obligations of having Palestinians in their country and to give them uh, equal opportunity when it comes to at least education in tertiary level. Yeah, I know maybe access to employment is difficult in a country that has problem of un unemployment. So let's not ask them or expect them to do that. But they can do much better than what they are doing. How does someone get out of a camp if they lived in Lebanon or Syria? They haven't got a passport. They're a non-person. Mm. How do you move out? Where do you go? Can you so get out? To move out f within the country, there's no uh, restriction. You can just uh, live in the camp, work in the camp, and just catch up with your friends in Beirut. You go, can travel to Tripoli in normal situations, and the same goes in Syria or previously in Iraq. But to leave the country, it is actually very difficult, not because the authorities don't allow you to leave, because the other countries do not accept the, the travel document that this particular Arab country gave you. In fact, it is not a passport. They call it travel document. They don't want to use 
the word passport because passport means citizenship, statehood. And therefore, they use a, a different Arabic word that is called wathiqa, wathiqat safar, travel document. And the Palestinians, it's like a proper noun within the Palestinian discourse, al-wathiqa. Leaving Lebanon with the Lebanese travel document, which is a para-passport uh, document, is difficult. You, you can't find countries accepting the wathiqa. You can't travel. In fact, issuing travel documents for Palestinians, Palestinian refugees, is an Arab League resolution. The Arab League, which is a political umbrella of the Arab countries, it's like the United Nations of the Arab world, which most Arabs view as dysfunctional when it comes to serious decisions. However, there are areas of functionality. One thing they actually made uh, resolutions on was issuing travel documents to Palestinian refugees, and that was in 1952, I think. And the reason they said issuing travel documents as opposed to passports is that to keep reminding Palestinians that they are not the citizens of Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, etc., and that one day they have to return, meaning that we have to be grateful that they will continue constantly remind us that we are Palestinians. But the price of that is, is heavy in terms of human rights. So you have the Iraqi travel document, you have the Lebanese travel document, Syrian travel document, the Egyptian travel document, and you have the Jordanian passport, for the reason I told you. Now, Palestinians in Jordanian passports can, can travel with more freedom than those who hold travel documents, whether Iraqi, Syrian, Lebanese, or Egyptian. And of course, even the rights and limitations and restrictions of each and every one varies, and it's a long story of it on, on its own. What was the life for Palestinians under Hussein in Iraq, and mm. what is it now? What we call the Palestinian Iraqis. In fact, the Palestinian Iraqis, they are the smallest group of the Palestinian refugees, simply because Iraq doesn't have common borders with Palestine. You have to travel, you have to cross Jordan. There is a bit of a unique uh, situation of the Palestinian Iraqis, because most of the Palestinian Iraqis came from three villages near Haifa, Ain Ghazal, Ejzem, and Jaba, but namely. These are small little villages. Now, when they lost uh, their villages in '48, they sought refuge to Jenin in West Bank. And Jenin back then was under the administration of the Iraqi army, part of the Arab armies that were sent to Palestine. I have to give credit to the, to the Iraqi army in '48 because they actually prevented Jenin to fall in '48, Jenin could have been not in West Bank, could have been in proper Israel, the whole city and neighborhood of, of Jenin, if, if it wasn't for the Iraqi army and the bravery of its soldiers, most of whom were Shias. And here we're talking about the newly born sectarian polarization, which we didn't have in the '48. Uh, so when the Iraqi army was leaving Palestine, they just actually told this kind of... 2,500 Palestinians who actually came from Haifa, all right, come and join us. You don't have places here. So it was like some, something like an, an informal invitation to Iraq. And they were actually, they just uh, on trucks and whatever, uh, they made it to Baghdad. And this 2,500 Palestinians in '48, they became more than 20,000 in 2004 upon the toppling of Saddam. 
But of course, the status of this group of people varied in, in, in the 50 years before the invasion of Iraq. First, they were given the guest status. Being a guest is, is, is great, but it doesn't mean that you are entitled. It means that you are not entitled to any rights. And also, UNRWA doesn't operate. United Nations does not operate in Baghdad. And that actually has a negative aspect on the Palestinian Iraqis because they are not registered as refugees. Let's say the Palestinians and Israelis will sign a peace treaty and Israel will say, well, we're, we're not going to take this group of people because United Nations doesn't recognize them as refugees. So under Hussein, they were given better rights. It's like Syria, for example, access to education, access to employment, access to health facilities. They were not, of course, treated like Iraqis, especially in ownership. They could not own a property. They could not even own a car. You cannot register a car in your name. You need an Iraqi to sponsor you. But that's about it. There was no anti-Palestinian sentiment. There was actually pro-Palestinian discourse that Saddam uh, used in, in, in his uh, rule. And that actually played a, a negative role after the toppling of Saddam because most Iraqis blamed Palestinians for the Iran war for eight years because, because the speeches of Saddam started by uh, and ended by long live Iraq, long live, long live Palestine. So they, the, the average Iraqis blamed them for the wars against Iran, the, the invasion of uh, Kuwait, the Gulf War, and the, also everything else that followed. And therefore, there was anti-Palestinian sentiment after the toppling of Saddam. And it actually resulted in uprooting 90% of this community. 90% of the Palestinian Iraqis have become stateless and scattered around the world. What about Egypt? Are the Palestinians still in Egypt? Egypt actually also had a unique uh, situation when it comes to Palestinians because Gaza in '48 was under Egyptian administration, under Abdel Nasser, Jamal Abdel Nasser's rule, meaning that the schools, the textbooks in schools and the uh, administration of the state uh, establishments like hospitals, etc., and institutions uh, were administered by, uh, by Egyptians from 48 to 67. But unlike Jordan, when it annexed West Bank and granted the people of West Bank passports, Jamal Abdel Nasser did not annex Gaza and did not grant the people of Gaza Egyptian passports. So he granted them travel documents. Now, with travel documents, it means that, yeah, you can enter Egypt, you can study in its schools. Of course, over uh, decades, the uh, situation changed depending on the relation with the Palestine, with PLO, the relation with Fatah, the relation with Hamas recently, it, it reflects how the population of Egypt view the Palestinian cause and therefore the people of Palestine. So uh, there are ups and downs, but in general, there are more downs than ups, unfortunately. One example, when Saddam invaded Kuwait in 1990, Mubarak of Egypt joined the American-led coalition to liberate Kuwait. Whereas Arafat and PLO was understood that he actually joined the pro-Saddam axis. And that's why the Palestinians, the Palestinian Egyptians, paid the price. Mubarak in 1990 issued an undeclared 
but we know it because we've seen it, we've lived it, resolution that the holders of Palestinian-Egyptian travel documents cannot enter Egypt, which is a huge contradiction. Let's say Australian citizens cannot enter Australia. It's exactly like that. Which means that if you are a Palestinian-Egyptian expatriate working in Saudi Arabia, for example, or going for a holiday, or going da-da-da-da, or somewhere, or for school, you just can't go back home. And after two years of pressures, he gave accept, uh, exceptions to women and men over 60, or males under 16. What does that supposed to mean? That the country that granted you the travel document cannot accept you. And we've seen in the following... Libyan, I mean, I'm talking about 1995, after Oslo Accord, Gaddafi, which was another lunatic Arab leader, decided to get rid of the Palestinian community of Libya. I don't know if you've heard of that. 1995. There was just a few thousand of uh, Palestinian expatriates working in Libya. Some of them were holders of Jordanian passports. Others were holders of Syrian travel documents, Lebanese travel documents, Egyptian travel documents. Gaddafi decided to just get rid of the whole uh, Palestinian expatriate population and told them, you just follow Arafat. It's not my responsibility to look after you anyway, anymore or, or to host you in my country. And they were actually taken to desert camps. That was in 1995. Egypt didn't allow the Palestinian holders of Egyptian travel documents to enter Egypt. Lebanon, with difficulty, allowed them to enter so these are the, some examples of the heavy price of Palestinian statelessness that only Palestinians actually get to know through the very prolonged life of Nakba. We are in the 67th year of Nakba. And ironically, from a numerical point of view, it is the 67th year of Nakba, and it is the 48th year of the loss of uh, the 67 war. Also on numerical contradictions. But what I'm talking about is that there is huge price of Palestinian statelessness. And it is mostly because of the failure of Arab regimes to fulfill their moral and legal ob obligations towards Palestinians. And Palestinians continue to pay the price a generation after another. And of course, it's not only the refugees in the neighbouring countries, it's the refugees living within Palestine itself. Exactly. The refugees living within Palestine itself, uh, we're talking about several camps in West Bank. These are for people who fled in '48 and, and came to West Bank, which is another part of Palestine, but they don't own property, unlike the people of West Bank, which means that they have to suffer double level of suffering. The people of West Bank, all of them, have to endure the terrible consequences of living under occupation. These people have to endure that. On top of that, statelessness, living in as refugees. And if you look at the contrast in Gaza, everybody in Gaza suffers from the heavy price of siege. And the refugees of Gaza, on top of siege, they have to also suffer statelessness. And that's because Israel still refuses to implement the United Nations Resolution 191 that calls for Palestinian refugees to return and compensation. 
You've been listening to Yusuf Romali, who is a translator. He's a human rights activist. And importantly, too, he presents the program for Palestinians here on 3CR at 9.30 every Saturday morning for half an hour, which is called Palestine Remembered. And on the program next week, we'll be continuing the interview with Yusuf. Coming up to the end of the program, have a few messages and then we'll hear from Jonathan. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Hey Jodie, I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. Oh, just in the words of the Pointer Sisters, hey? What? What's happening? The new 3CR t-shirts are coming out. We had a competition, Kate Reid won it, and it's so beautiful. It's got roses and a love heart, and then the caption is, resistance is fertile. Oh, too deadly that, eh? So in order to get one, go to the 3CR website and follow the link to shop. And there's $30. $30? Oh, what a bargain. And $25 for kids. You'll be able to secure one for yourself because they're in hot demand. Yay, get one now. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, but hang in there. Jonathan will be here very soon. Bye for now.